This is an AMI podcast. I'm Chuita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. If you were around my age and grew up at a time when curb cuts were common, audio descriptions or closed captions available, you might think that this was how it always was, is, and will be. There is, however, a long and powerful history of activism within the disability community. People with disabilities have demonstrated strength in numbers, lobbied government, built coalitions, and sometimes put their bodies on the line to fight for an inclusive, just, and equal society. People with disabilities have pushed back against the status quo, challenged what seemed impossible, and toiled to turn no into yes. But we can't become complacent or rest on past achievements. Today, we discuss disability activism with Judith Human. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joitha Gupta. Some years ago, I read a quote by poet and activist Audre Lorde, and the words have stayed with me. Open quote. I was going to die sooner or later, whether or not I had even spoken myself. My silences had not protected me. Your silences will not protect you. What are the words you do not yet have? What are the tyrannies you swallow day by day and attempt to make your own until you will sicken and die of them? Still in silence. We have been socialized to respect fear more than our own need for language. End quote. Why did these words resonate with me so much as a person with a disability? I know that many of us as people with disabilities experience daily struggles, despite the many changes for the better and for improvement that have been made. And I also know that many of us will perhaps never join a sit-in or hold up a placard or go to a march, but I guarantee that many of us will be confronted with one or more situations in our daily lives when we will be confronted with that choice. Do we speak up or not? And I would argue that as people with disabilities, we need to speak in one voice because only when we speak up Only when we raise our voices will we see change happen. My guest today is someone who is no stranger to speaking up. I will be speaking in a few moments to disability rights activist as well as civil rights activist, Judith Human. Judith has had many accolades in her career, which includes becoming the first special advisor on disability rights for the U.S. State Department appointed by President Barack Obama, for which she served from 2010 to 2017. She is currently a senior fellow at the Ford Foundation and is the author of a new new memoir called Being Human, an unrepented memoir of a disability rights activist. She was also featured on the cover of Time magazine as part of a special series where they profiled the top 100 women and Judy was asked to represent the year 1977. And Judy is my guest today. She joins us by phone. Hello and welcome to The Pulse. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. 
It's great to have you. And I won't lie to you. I am so excited to be speaking to you. When I read your memoir, one of the first things that I read, which took me by surprise and might take others by surprise, was the fact that you write that you were never, you never wished that you didn't have a disability. Judy, what did you mean by that? You know, I had polio in 1949 and I was 18 months old. So it's the way I've lived my entire life. And I think many people believe that those of us with disabilities would prefer not to have them. And in my case, I think the issue really has been more the barriers that have been put up before me, like for millions of others. And not that my not having a disability would make life easier, but I think really that the challenge needs to be that we need to remove those barriers. Because mm-hmm. disability, you know, many people acquire disabilities as they're becoming older and it's a normal part of life. Mm-hmm. So for me, it just always felt like my objective wasn't to be something that I wasn't going to ever be, but rather to look at what I could be able to do and what barriers existed that I needed to not overcome, um, but really break down. Mm. Now, many years ago, your parents were told by doctors exactly what my parents were told by doctors, which is, why don't you just put your daughter in an institution? And like my parents, your parents pushed back against that idea that disabled children needed to be uh, institutionalized and forgotten about. What was your parents' rationale, Judy? Honestly, I don't know. I speculate in the book. Mm. Uh, My parents, and the reason I say I don't know is I was 36 years old before my father told me that this had ever happened. Mm -hmm. And so actually, my parents and I never had a real discussion about why they said no. Um, My dad and I, I was home visiting. My dad and I were at the table just talking and this came up and I said, oh, no, Dad, that can't be true. He goes running up the stairs of the of the house we had. Mm. My mother's name was Ilsa, saying, Ilsa, Ilsa, isn't it true that this doctor said we should put Judy in an institution? And my mother said, yes. Mm. And I heard that. And that was what I can remember. So, But I speculate in the book that the reason why my parents wouldn't uh, have put me in an institution is they lost so many family um, in the Holocaust mm-hmm. um, because we're Jewish. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, I don't think that was ever in their game plan. Mm-hmm. I think in some way it's very similar to your question of why didn't I ever think I wanted to have not have a disability. Mm-hmm. I think my parents made a decision that, you know, I had polio and that they were going to deal with it to the best of their ability. So I think it's all part and parcel of the same package. Mm-hmm. And your mom becomes a tireless advocate for you, particularly within the education system. You would go on to receive a lot of acclaim because of your lawsuit human versus the New York Board of Education. And I'll talk to you about that for sure in just a few minutes. But Judy, what is it that drove you to yourself become an advocate for inclusive education for students with disabilities? It was when I was eight or nine years old when another child in our neighborhood kind of came over to me as 
my friend and I were going down the street. She was pushing my wheelchair, and this boy comes up to me and says, are you sick? Mm. And at that point is when I really, I think, started seeing myself more differently. It's hard to explain. I obviously knew that I used a wheelchair and that I couldn't do many things like my friends. Mm. But because my family and my friends, we always kind of adapted things. At the end of the day, I was doing things differently, but I was still doing most of the same things. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I wasn't doing that everybody else was doing was actually going to school. Mm -hmm. And so it was around that time, eight, nine years old, that I started more consciously thinking about my difference. And advocacy just kind of slowly, gradually came about. I believe really more after I started going to these segregated classes Mm -hmm. uh, where kids with other kinds of disabilities were much older than me. So we had kids 18, 19 years old in the classes that I was in. And I was learning that these uh, young adults would then go on to be in sheltered workshops, mm-hmm. these segregated work environments with minimum, less than minimum wage pay. So I think that's really when I started to, in a certain way, become an advocate. But also, I think when I was going to summer camp in my teenage, early teenage years, through my teenage years, mm-hmm talking with other friends who had disabilities and recognizing that our stories are common, Mm -hmm. but that our isolation from each other hasn't allowed us to see the commonality. Mm -hmm. Judy, the lawsuit that made you famous was Human versus the New York Board of Education. And the lawsuit was brought by you because the New York Board of Education which had consistently taken a dim view of people with disabilities, had now sought to deny you a teaching license, largely, if not solely, because of your disability. You were very successful in that lawsuit and were able to get the board to back down on that decision owing to the lawsuit. So I would encourage anyone who wants to find out more about the lawsuit to look it up online. But Judy, in light of that experience, what thought have you given to the lawsuit or legal reform as a pathway to social justice? Because there are, two, there are two opinions about it. Some people think it's a great idea and other people think that it's an inherently bad idea. I think in the United States, we would say that as far as lawsuits are concerned, they're not inherently bad, but one needs to be careful in thinking about the kinds of lawsuits that one is going to be bringing. Mm-hmm. And by that I say, you know, in this country here, there is deep concern about the Trump administration Mm -hmm. and the number of conservative judges that have been appointed to the bench. And so I think looking at uh, filing lawsuits needs to be carefully scrutinized because you don't, as a rule, whatever country you're in, Mm -hmm. you want to avoid what you can to get bad precedent. Mm -hmm. So I think that's just an overarching comment that exists when considering lawsuits. But in the United States, I think we also look at lawsuits as something 
which definitely can be beneficial. And in the case of when I filed this lawsuit against the Board of Education, I had two good attorneys, and um, we had no laws specifically at that time dealing with anti-discrimination, either Section 504, Mm. which is a law that came about in 1973. My lawsuit was in 1970. And um, we also did not have the Americans with Disabilities Act. So we used the Bill of Rights in the United States to sue under. Mm -hmm. Now, the case itself was settled out of court because we were very fortunate. We had the first African-American female judge ever appointed to the federal court Mm -hmm. as our judge. Her name was Constance Baker Motley. And uh, she told the Board of Ed that she encouraged them to go back and do another examination. Mm-hmm. What the, the formal reason that I was denied my job was paralysis of both lower extremities, sequelae of poliomyelitis because of my polio. Mm-hmm. So that was absolutely the reason why I was denied my job because I had to take a written and oral test and I had passed both of those. Mm-hmm. So... I think I've been involved in numerous lawsuits and complaints, and I am thoughtful about the kinds of lawsuits I get involved in, but where I believe and others believe that there's been serious violations of the law, we have, in fact, filed lawsuits, and in most cases, one. And lawsuits are one of many tactics At another point in your life, you're a leader of a 28-day sit-in where you took over a federal building. A lot of us may not even have been around when that all happened. So, Judy, can you paint a picture? What was that like for you? Uh, So let me say a couple of quick things. Uh, Those of you who have access to YouTube, and I assume that's everybody, there are a couple of things that you can go look at. One is called The Power of 504. It's an 18-minute documentary which um, uses footage from the demonstrations that occurred in San Francisco at the Health Education and Welfare Building in 1977. This provision of law that I mentioned, Section 504, which came into being in 1973, in the United States, we have something called regulations. Mm -hmm. After a law is written, it's very typical that uh, there are rules that come out which explain what the law requires in order to effectively implement. Mm -hmm. And regulations had been being worked on in 74, 75, 76, and they had still not been signed and uh, therefore were not actively being utilized. And there was an organization that had been formed, which unfortunately lived only about seven years, called the American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities, Uh, which was a cross-disability coalition. And one of the reasons this group came together was to fight to get the regulations for Section 504 signed. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Republicans had been in charge during the period that 504 became law. It was signed into law by Republican President Nixon. Nixon. And then when Nixon left government, Mm -hmm. uh, Gerald Ford became president. And he had refused to sign the regulations. When Jimmy Carter, a Democrat, 
uh, became president, he had promised that they would sign the regulations in the form that they were in. Mm -hmm. But when his new head of ministry came on, Joseph Califano, he decided that he was going to carefully review the regulations and he had numbers of concerns. Mm -hmm. And as we learned about his concerns, that's when ACCD decided that if the regulations were not signed by, I believe it was April 1st, mm -hmm. 1977, that we would have demonstrations in nine or 10 cities in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so in communities around the country, people were organizing and beginning to plan what demonstrations would look like on April 1st if the regulations weren't signed. Mm -hmm. In the Bay Area, San Francisco, Berkeley area in California, we started organizing in February of 1977. We put together a coalition of cross-disability organizations, labor unions, religious leaders, other uh, community-based organizations that were not necessarily just focusing on disability mm. to put together a rally outside the Health Education and Welfare Building in San Francisco and also to have a meeting with the man in charge of what's called in the U.S. Region 9, which is where San Francisco was. Mm -hmm. We organized a very large demonstration. We had hundreds of people at it. We went inside to have our meeting with Mr. Maldonado, and uh, much to our dismay, he really was completely not informed about Section 504 or where the regulations were, and a group of us decided that we were not going to leave the building. Mm -hmm. uh, long and short is the demonstrations in San Francisco were the longest that have ever been held in the United States occupying a federal building. All the other demonstrations in the U.S. in different cities ended pretty quickly for various reasons. And I think the demonstrations in San Francisco lasted as long as they did and were as effective as they were uh, was because the community there, the Centers for Independent Living in Berkeley and San Francisco and others, had worked with outside of the disability community. Mm -hmm. So we had set up informal groups and had a lot of support from many different people. Mm -hmm. Regulations were signed. They were signed as they were when uh, Jimmy Carter came into office in 1977. Mm -hmm. A group of about 20 or so people from the Bay Area went to Washington, D.C. while the building was being occupied in San Francisco. We met up with other disability rights activists from ACCD and other groups mm -hmm. and had demonstrations for a number of days in San Francisco. And I think that's ultimately what got the regulations signed. Mm -hmm. Let's fast forward to the Trump presidency. And we know that President Trump, who mocked a reporter with a disability, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, is, to be perfectly candid, no friend to people with disabilities. In light of your experiences around organizing for to implement regulations in Section 504, what are some of the lessons and takeaways that might be applied to disability activism and community building today? Well, I think a number of things. First of all, one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book mm -hmm. was, again, as you were saying earlier, we have common experiences. Mm -hmm. Our experiences are not identical, but I've heard from a number of friends of mine 
in other countries that when they're reading the book, it's like their book. It's very important that we, as you were also saying when you were reading Audrey's quote, that silence is not our friend. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes just like the discussion we were having around lawsuits, people cannot always speak up and out as they wish at the moment. But I think we should always be recognizing that being authentic in our storytelling is very important. Mm -hmm. Identifying with other people, being able to come together Mm -hmm. to identify common barriers. And also, as you were saying, you know, the importance of having one voice. I don't know that we necessarily have one voice. We don't in democracies, you know, have one voice, but I understand what you're saying. Mm. And in the case of the United States, with both Section 504 and the Americans with Disabilities Act and other pieces of legislation, it was really important that we could be unified, that we understood each other's differences, and that we were not trying to sell one group out over another. Mm -hmm. Like, give me this, even if it means you're not going to get what you need. So I think that's been very important, is doing our very best to stick together and to talk together and to fight together. Judy, I have such a long list of questions to get to, but the one that really I wanted to ask you about is you have spent a lifetime as an activist. Many people that I talk to in activist circles talk about burning out, talk about feeling exhausted, talk about feeling like they're getting nowhere. How do we build resilience as a disability community? We've made gains, but let's admit it, we've got a long way to go. So how do we keep fighting the good fight on a long-term basis? I think it's really important to have friends who you can talk to, Mm -hmm. frequently disabled friends, who will really understand because they're in the fight, whether they're in a group or just on their own, how difficult it is for change to happen. Mm -hmm. For me, I know people ask me this question all the time, and I would say that I really get energized by being able to emotionally help support other people, Mm -hmm. as well as to give legitimacy to the fact that as disabled people, we should not be facing discrimination based on our disability, Mm -hmm. or our disability in our race, or our disability race and gender or disability, race, gender, sexual orientation, or disability, race, gender, sexual orientation, and religion, you know, or age. So I think we need to be able to feel rewarded by change. Mm -hmm. Believe in yourself, surround yourself with people who are fighting for the same thing, Mm -hmm. whether they have a disability or not. Judy, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you, and I feel so energized having had a chance to speak to you. I've loved reading your memoir, and I hope others will as well. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Let me say one other quick thing. There's going to be a film coming out on March 25th on Netflix. It's Mm -hmm. called Crip Camp, C-R-I-P-C-A-M-P. It's another documentary, uh, which I think your audience will like looking at. Oh, I've already, I've already uh, put it on my favorites. I plan to watch it. Thanks a lot, Judy. Thank you. Bye. That was uh, Judith Human, who is a disability rights advocate and activist, and her memoir, Being Human, a memoir about an unrepentant disability rights activist, is available 
in hard copy as well as online on Kindle. And I got mine over Apple Books. And I hope you will pick it up because I don't just make a case for every book I read, but I do make a case for this book because I think it is so important for people with disabilities to pick this one up and read it because it is a call to action. It reminds us not to take our rights and our civil rights at that at, for granted. I want to say that the disability rights movement has come a long way. Our community and our coalition building has paid off. As a person with a disability, and I live with my disability all my life, I have been the beneficiary of some of the activism and change facilitated by people like Judy. But I think it's time that we, as the youth, if I can still call myself that, have an obligation to think deeper and go beyond what we've already gained and build a truly inclusive and transnational disability rights movement. I would like to thank our guest today, Judith Human. I hope you'll check out the podcast of this program as well as head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse for a few more remarks from me. The pulse is produced by Enrica Delanerol. Our technical producer is Sam Robinson and the manager for AMI audio is Andy Frank. We'd also love to get your feedback. Write to feedback at ami.ca. Find us on Twitter at AMI audio. Use the hashtag pulse AMI or give us a call at one. 1- 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. And let us know if we have your permission to play the audio on the program. We would love to hear about your activism, some of the barriers you face, and some of the community that you found. Judy's story is my story and your story. No matter what our differences, as people with disabilities, we have so much in common. And I hope we can speak together in one voice. Thanks a lot for being a part of the program and the journey. This has been The Pulse on AMI-audio, and I've been your host, Juita Gupta. Have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.